Welcome to the Empower Your English Learner podcast, where we explore research, instructional strategies, leadership practices, and community initiatives that move the needle for English learners in school systems around the country. If you are a teacher, a school-based administrator, a district leader, or anyone who wants to do more for this group of students, then we are your home. In these episodes, we will explore ways to actively engage English learners in learning in the classroom, how to empower them so that they can achieve at higher levels, and how to ensure that they're more engaged and connected in the school community. We look forward to going through some ideas with you in our upcoming episodes. My name is Sandra Blotner, 26 veteran in the field of public education, and I am is really pleased to continue this conversation with you about how can we improve learning and engagement for English language learners. And I want to spend some time with you today to talk about instructional models. Now, when we had this secondary work group that we had put in place, and I talked about this in previous episodes, we really spent some time digging in to really understand what the U.S. Department of Education identified as models, what research was telling us about it, and then we also then used that knowledge to then do some professional learning in our district. So I want to kind of unpack that with you today, starting with the way that U.S. Department of Education defines models. And I will make sure that I drop the link to this information into this podcast so that you're able to explore it even deeper if you'd like to. So when we talk about um, some of the models that are out there, there are a couple models that focus around, and I'm going to, since we're focusing on students learning English, I'm going to focus on models around the target language being English, right? And then there are other models that kind focus on elevating both the home language and the target language of English. So I want to elevate some of these models for you so you're aware of them. There are also some models that have been seen to be, have been found in research to be very effective and others not so effective. I want to highlight that for you too. So I want to start with some of the models that are um, looking at both the target language of English as well as the home language. And that elevates our bilingual programs. So whether it's the dual language program or it's the maintenance bilingual education program or the transitional bilingual education program, these are all programs that are working on developing language and literacy in both um, the target English as well as the home language. Of these three models, and I'll explain what they are, and then I'll talk about which, which ones are the most effective. Of these three, dual language is the first one I want to kind of bring to your attention. And this one, it can also be called two-way immersion. The goal of this program is to take native speakers of English, native speakers or whatever the target language is, bring them together into the program half of their day learning English, half of they, their day learning the home language, so that in the end, not only are you developing the language and literacy of the English learners, or in this case, the multilingual learners, right? But that they're also developing the language and literacy in the home language. So that elevates the culture and linguistic assets that they bring to the table, as well as the learning the language and literacy of the new language, in this case, which would be English. And the same applies to the native English speakers who are learning that other language. So it really is about 
making sure that the kids see each other as as the cultural and linguistic assets that they are as they collaborate around the work of learning two languages. It has been found to be one of the most effective programs. And there's no wonder when you consider that of the way that it really elevates that academic identity of both groups of students. So they both see each other, the strengths that they're bringing to the table and how they learn. There are also other bilingual programs, and the two that I want to elevate that the that U.S. Department of Education have highlighted is the maintenance bilingual. So this is looking at late exit bilingual education programs and how do you make sure that once they've exited the program, you're still kind of doing some work to develop their language and their literacy in the home language as they continue to their careers learning in English. Most of their content courses like math and science and social studies in English, and then they have this other way to kind of maintain the language that's another approach not has not been as successful or ha as effective but it is another dual language um, another bilingual program another um, bilingual program that um, and this is one that is used in many districts just because of the resources that are available um, is the transitional bilingual and I and that's actually the one of the programs that I've experienced where you um, are the students learn and let's say they enter in kindergarten and they get about 80% or in some cases 100% in kindergarten in the native language. Um, in other, some places it's 80-20, so 80% of their day in, in, let's say, Spanish, and 20% in English. By the time they get to grade one, it becomes 50-50, and then when they get to grade two, then it becomes 80% English, 20%, um, you know, the home language, and so that's kind of how they balance it. And what I found in that program that has been very effective is the teacher really should be bilingual in both, because often it's that same teacher that's doing both. And it's important that they have a part of the classroom that's focused on the target language English, and another part of the room that's focusing on Spanish. So they have word walls up, and they have text that they're highlighting and they have um, notes on the wall in Spanish and they have student work in Spanish. On the other side of the room, they have the um, notes on the wall and they have directions and everything in English. So in English and Spanish, and, and that's the way they're able to differentiate. So they have a stop sign when it's time to stop with one language and then they shift to the other and they try to get the kids to shift their desk so they understand. And that helps them as they're translanguaging between the two languages so that they understand how they're making the connections. So that's been very effective. I've also seen the dual language program. One thing to keep in mind with that program is that, and I know this is one, like I said, it is one of the most effective programs and some of the work from Collier where they've really done some research around various programs and different models and what's effective, they've found that it can be extremely effective, especially, and it doesn't always show up in the very first, in the lower grades, but it shows up when they get to middle school. This is that, that when they're exiting the program, they're moving on, are they able to sustain those gains and perform at higher levels? And research has shown that a very effective um, two-way immersion program can really do that well for students and can help them to maintain those gains and the language and literacy in both English and that home language so they're able to really be stronger academic students and have a stronger academic identity of who they are because they've never lost the other part of themselves that culture and linguistic identity has been honored and they're also learning that new language so just something to keep in mind when you're thinking about programs. 
one thing to keep in mind that if, if this is one thing that a program that you want to consider bringing into your district, you've got to realize that it's one of those things that you've got to do slowly. So for instance, if you're bringing it in, whether it's at your school or the district, you'd probably want to start with kindergarten. And you need to think about, remember, we talked about systems thinking. So you're thinking about communicating with families, identifying the teachers who will be teaching the English and that whatever the target language is, um, making sure that there's professional learning for the teachers and that's well planned out and there's instructional supports for the teachers and there's monitoring of instruction to ensure that the students are truly learning the language learning the content in English as well as the content in the native language and it's really important often what seems to be very effective is also you're not repeating content but you're going for you're basically continuing the curriculum and they're learning content in one language and then they continue the learning as they go into that um, their home language so keep that in mind and of course home language versus the target language varies depending from the perspective of the kids we're talking whether they're native English speakers or native Spanish speakers or native French speakers whichever students they are, but you really want to be very deliberate about that and working with um, someone who can really help you to um, structure the program effectively is really important. One huge resource for that would be NABE, the National Bilingual Association for Educators. There's a great resource. They have a lot of um, districts that are part of that um, association that have been doing the work. So that would be definitely would highly recommend that you reach out to them. So that kind of addresses some of the bilingual programs and some things to think about. I wanted to kind of shift a little bit now to those programs that are for English speakers, right? Or, and let's put it this way, for when instruction is happening, primarily in English, and that is the focus. So there are various ways that you can approach it. And one of them is a content-based ESL program. So that's one thing that you might consider. And when you're thinking about that program, you're really looking at what content needs to be taught and how can the language be wrapped around it. When students are listening, speaking, reading, and writing, how are they doing that in the target language? So really important for you to consider what that looks like for students. In addition to that, so that would be your content-based um, ESL program, and that actually of all of the ESL programs can be the most effective because it's about teaching both the language and the content in a very integrated way. And so just keep that in mind. And that, if you'll remember in past episodes when we talked about some of the models that we explored in our district and some of the districts we've worked in, that that's what we've noticed that when they are doing this ESL, it is that content-based ESL, which is ensuring that the instruction is aligned to the grade level standard. <laughs> now, there are two other programs that you might also consider which is a newcomer program and sheltered instruction. So let me explain the difference between them, even though they have some similarities. The newcomer program for brand new kids that come in, and the purpose of the program is to help the students transition into the classroom. So they're in the classroom, the pacing is different, you're adjusting probably the amount of content that's being taught and it's primarily focusing on helping those brand new students get acclimated to the environment. Some of the programs that might address this are also for students with interrupted education and they typically are the ones that might be put in these kind of a separate program before they go into the general education program. Um, 
I personally would not recommend that you do too much of that because any time that is spent in a program that's to totally isolating students and going back to what we talked about earlier when we talked about the Dear Colleague letter is really moving them away from being with their peers and creates that other versus them, right? So is that what we want to create and how does that potentially impact their identity? It can be a way to really kind of help to get them acclimated. But if you're doing a program like that, I would recommend you do it in a very short time. Maybe you were looking at a month or three months, but again, not necessarily the, the best way to do it. And what I've found to be most effective is if you have a newcomer program, it's part of a larger ESL program so that the students are able to transition. And instead of doing it by separating them totally, you just maybe give more time for instruction for these newer students. So that's kind of when we talked about early in past episodes about having, let's say a double period of 90 minutes for level ones and twos versus um, 45 minutes for those that are upper proficiency levels, that would be what I would mean. Another way to address it is sheltered instruction. Now keep in mind for sheltered instruction, this is how it varies from the newcomer, is that it is often for newcomers, but the point and the focus of that sheltered class is really the content learning and objectives. And instead, what they're doing is you're putting the um, English learners into that classroom so that they can learn at a slightly different pace, but their focus is learning the content with supports for the language. So it's a, a little bit of a different approach in that it's really about ensuring that they're getting the content and often those shelter classes are still earning the um, grade the content area um, credits that are needed to earn the graduation and to meet their graduation requirements or earn their credits towards graduation so keep that in mind there are two others that also I wanted to highlight for you so you're aware of them and that you also know some caveats about them. One that they mentioned was the Structured Immersion Program. That is primarily just putting kids into their English-only classrooms, no real additional instruction provided, and the students are basically just receiving their kind of vicariously learning language. Another one for you to consider is submersion program, which is like just English only, no supports. Um, and this can, the submersion versus destruction immersion can sometimes be confused. Keep in mind that if you're doing a submersion program and there is no language support, essentially you are not meeting what the U.S. Department of Education says, which is the students have a right. They have a civil right to receive language instruction. And that is not being met. With structured immersion, how some have done, and they've done this in California and Arizona and other places, is they have made sure that all of the teachers are duly certified. Now, one thing you need to keep in mind, and I mentioned this in a past um, episode, that often for those teachers, they tend to end up focusing on teaching content. And, and I found often that whenever we're getting that duly certified situation, that can often be the place unless there's intense professional learning that's happening for the teachers. And you need to be aware that the structured immersion is one of the least effective programs. And in fact, in places where it's being done widely, they've seen huge upticks in graduation rates going down for English language learners. So do keep that in mind. 
that often tends to be the least amount of staffing needed, but that doesn't always mean you're going to get the best instruction for students. In fact, Arizona had a lawsuit against them because of using this model and being forced to shift to a model where they were providing explicit instruction. Families band together with um, attorneys and took on the dis several districts. In California, after several years of, of growing a large number of long-term English learners who were underperforming and not um, able to achieve at high levels, they decided to kind of shift their model back to where, yes, everyone is duly certified, but there is explicit English language development instruction that's taking place. And they did uh, some extensive research around that work um, from Scarcella and um, Kinsella and several others, Dutro and Marie to really understand what instruction needed to look like. So that's just something that you should be aware of. One thing that I found absolutely fascinating was um, some of the work that was done by Education Northwest in the Beaverton School District. And the Beaverton School District brought them in to really do an extensive study about the programs that they had in place to really understand what models were very effective. Now, it's fascinating the U.S. Department of Education doesn't really call out co-teaching, but that is a very, very effective model that has surfaced especially in some of the research most recently. So, um, if you want to continue to explore that, I would ex highly recommend looking at some of Honingfeld and Dove's work. Um, again, this was uh, looking up the Beaverton um, District study was another phenomenal one that you would want to look at. Now, what was fascinating in the district is they did a study to really understand what the programming looked like. They noticed that in many elementary schools, they were doing a lot of co-teaching as well as making sure that they had pullout models in place K through five. So the pullout would mean they're pulling kids aside and they're providing that daily intensive English language development instruction. And then the co-teaching is happening in the classroom with the ESL teacher and the content teacher and they're working together. Um, and what they found was when they were doing the ELD only the pullout, they had were receiving that language instruction but had le less access to the core content curricula. And in addition to that, when they looked at the co-teaching model, they maintained the core content, um, access to the core content standards, as well as receiving the language development. Often in the ELD class periods, they also noticed that they were receiving that English language development instruction, but they didn't see as much happening around the, so it seemed like their um, ELD courses weren't fully aligned to grade level standards, so that seemed to be a challenge for them. And then when they looked at sheltered instruction, both at the elementary and secondary level, the students in that model were receiving access to the content standards. Now, they also had a newcomer program as well as dual language and noted that in their newcomer program as well as their dual language program, they were able to see that they were accessing both bodies of standards. So here's what they found. When they looked at the elementary schools to kind of get a sense of how many were um, participating in programs, over 42% were in the co-taught model with about 33% in a pullout model. For the secondary level, about 67% of the students were in that ELD class period. Um, for elementary, they had about 16% in the dual language program. And at the high um, secondary level, excuse me, they had about 5% in the dual language model. So that was, I thought, fascinating. And on average, the students 
students were receiving around 45 minutes of instruction. So that seemed to be really what made the biggest difference in the score. And they noticed that that right around the 45 minutes seemed to be what influence students going up in their scores, and that seemed to make a huge difference for them. Overall, when they looked at what seemed to grow the language of the students as well as their content learning, so they were looking at both, right? It's the language proficiency as well as those that were really engaged. They found that those in the dual language and co-teaching programs grew the most. So they noticed that the dual language had the largest percentage with co-teaching closely following. Same thing applied, that was around reading and how they were developing reading skills in writing dual language led and co-teaching closely followed for writing. In listening, it was interesting that the co-teaching led and that the um, dual language kind of followed. And, I'm, and I don't know how that played out, if it was looking at specific grade levels, but it was mostly at the elementary. So it would have been interesting to see where many of the students were sitting. It could be that the, the dual language was less because many of their kids in the dual language programs were at the lower grade levels, but that's, a, that's something to kind of explore. Um, and then in addition to that, um, when you looked at speaking, those kids that were in the dual language model far exceeded those that were in the co-teaching and other models. So just wanted you to see one thing that you should be aware of, and this kind of goes back to the conversation a little while ago about submersion, which is really no language instruction, but those students who waived receiving language services, whatever it was, whether it was pullout or um, you know, co-teaching or dual language, those that waived instruction. And we've seen this pattern in our district. We've seen this in other districts we've worked with. And we've also seen this in um, just, it plays out in the research and the data as well, that those students who refuse services tend to underperform. Think about it this way. What we've seen is that the greater the language proficiency, the higher the level of achievement. And when students are basically their learning development for language is arrested or in some ways some people might you might hear the terminology fossilizing language at lower levels they tend to continue to underperform in their content classes so really really important to know not only do they fossilize um, do they underperform in their content classes but their language fossilizes and they tend to also underperform on language proficiency tests so in fact we've seen negative um, gains for students who have not received service and also they tend to struggle in their classes and then they're not receiving that additional support needed to be able to learn the language to connect to the content learning and so that ends up being very problematic for them so I wanted to just kind of share that with you something to, that you, if you're thinking about improving outcomes for your English learners in your district or in your school. There are some different models to consider. I would highly recommend that you really explore the dual language model. And remember, it's not something you can roll up very quickly. You really have to be very strategic and roll it up grade level by grade level so you're growing your program as you go. That's really important to keep in mind. Um, uh, there are some opportunities that we found to be able to do some bilingual 
supports for students, especially those students who have students with interrupted education are SIFE students. And if you look at those at the upper level, sometimes they come in and having received some instruction, it can be helpful to interject like a, a Spanish literacy class for them at that level to kind of build on that foundation as you're teaching English. So they're kind of creating a kind of a semi um, bilingual program for them, we found has been helpful for some students. But in general, when you're doing your building a dual language program, you really want to start at that lower level and then roll it up to the different grade levels. And then if you're doing the program well and you have a real um, systematic pro, um, plan in place, you could literally do it in more than one school at the same time where you say we're doing 15 schools at the same time and they become a cohort together. And then you roll it up to the next year, that cohort moves to one to K, K and one, and then maybe you bring another cohort on for K. So it all depends on how much money that you have. What I've found as I've gone and visited other districts is one of the things that they've done to be able to grow their dual program, dual language program well, and this district was amazing. I mean, they had about 27 if you want to go visit the district, it would be U46 in um, in, um, in Illinois. So definitely a great place to go see. But what I found they did is they really went big. They had like, I think they started with 27 schools all at once K. And then they've been rolling up. They've been doing it for several years now. And so they have now reached the middle school level. So they actually have rolled it up from K to one, to two, to three, to four, to five, to six. And they were moving on to seven and eight. So, I mean, and their goal was to roll it all the way up so that these students were really continuing to develop their language, the literacy, um, valuing their culture, and all of that was being done. They To make sure that they had the correct teachers in place, they had lots of partnerships with embassies as well as universities to be able to bring teachers in so that they were able to maintain the program. Because that can be one of the most difficult things to really run an effective dual language program is knowing how to recruit appropriately, and then knowing how to also do put those supports in place to retain those teachers. So something to keep in mind if you decide to go the route of the dual language program. Another thing that you want to consider is, especially for students at the lower proficiency levels, is ensuring that you have some sort of a content-based EL um, ELD program in place. So you're really looking at making sure that they have the language supports, but it's aligned to the language, to the content standards. And that really is important with lots of scaffolds and differentiation built in, but they also have access to the grade level standard. So that way you can truly say, yes, they have access. So that's important. The other thing that um, I would say that is we've really seen begin to take off for the upper proficiency levels is looking at how to effectively use co-teaching and what that looks like. So that's something for you to keep in mind. Now, one of the things that we've done as we've been working with teachers is we really try to make sure that they had the supports and understanding of the collaboration and co-teaching um, instructional model so they understood what that looked like because there's so many different ways to approach it. So that was definitely something we did and we studied some of Honeyfells and Dove's work and we really unpacked it as a team first and then we decided what the professional learning. It also meant collaboration um, with um, the English team to make sure that we were kind of building it together so we were able to deliver the professional learning in a systematic way to our English and our ELA, um, to our English and our ESL colleagues at the same time. 
So we first started with the leaders and we have resource teachers and content specialists. So with that team, kind of starting with them, building their understanding, looking at resources, looking at the models, kind of giving them a general idea, getting them to read some article and analyze the article and talk about models and really kind of outline what that looks like. We then continue the work. Um, and then the next step was to kind of get to the teachers who were actually collaborating and co-teaching. So I want to just highlight for you some of the learnings that we've done around the collaboration and co-teaching model that hopefully will be helpful for you as well. Um, one of the things that we start with is really our enduring understanding of what our beliefs are and our core values for English learners. And so it reads the success of English learners depends on how they engage in learning opportunities that develop academic language proficiency as they learn how to read and comprehend grade level complex texts aligned to both the common core and the WIDA standards. So really, again, we always start with that. So we talk about that why. The why is so important. It's about success. It's about learning and engagement. It's about learning academic language aligned to grade level standards, right? And knowing how to engage effectively with complex text. We then had them talk about successes and challenges. And that was really interesting to hear them talk about time and, you know, kids being able to access and not having enough differentiation and, and just, and then the successes, how working together really helped them understand how to better serve English learners. So that was a, some of the things, the learnings that came up. We talked about the different instructional models. And I just want to pause here for a moment with you. And I'll, in another episode, I'll go deeper into really unpacking the models. But you need to know that there are different ways to approach it where the teachers could be teaching together where teachers could be um, teaching um, in different parts, in different areas of the classroom, where um, in different groups or one group, both teachers are working together. So there are many different ways to approach it. And I will make sure that we go deeper in a, a future session because this is such a rich, rich um, instructional model to understand. Then the one of the things that I really wanted to emphasize for you here, and I won't go into too much detail because I want to make sure that I go into a greater detail when we have a little more time so we can kind of really take in what this model is all about. But the biggest takeaway that you need to know is about co-planning, co-teaching, co-assessing, and co-reflecting. So ultimately, you're thinking about have, making sure that these four elements are in place so that the teachers can work effectively together. Um, in our future episode, we will go deeper into it, but I did want to also just highlight something else that you need to be aware of when we talk about the collaboration and these four C's that, of collaboration that you need to keep in mind. And one of them is teachers need to be having conversations about the students' needs, about struggles and success around the curriculum and instruction. That is absolutely critical for them to be successful. Then comes the um, collaborative curriculum. So it's understanding that every lesson should have a language and content objective. There should be adapted materials. There should be, you should be analyzing the content objectives and unit goals, and then figuring out what academic language connects to that. So that's really, really important in those collaborative conversations and planning sessions that both teachers are unpacking that.
There's that collaborative coaching. So there's another C, right? The collaborative coaching really is that we're looking at the unit design. The ESL teacher needs to understand the content curriculum better. The content teacher needs to understand how language connects to the content curricula. So there is this opportunity for them to work together as a collaborative team and coach. Visit us at createsolutions.us and let us work with you to develop diverse learners and leaders so that they can become change agents in their fields of study and industry.